In this episode of 92i Talks, cast and creators of the Broadway hit The Band's Visit discuss this deeply human and humorous musical. Composer and lyricist David Yesbeck, librettist Itamar Moses, director David Cromer, producer Oren Wolf, and cast members Katrina Lank and Aria Stachel sit down with Michael Paulson, theater reporter for the New York Times. The conversation was recorded on April 15, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello. Uh, and thanks for braving this lovely spring evening to be here. So uh, let me just ask before we get started, how many of you have already seen the show? All of you. Good. Good. What are we doing here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the question that I know you all get a lot. Uh, you know, this, this musical is about uh, a group of Egyptians who get stranded in a Jewish desert town. There's almost no reference to the Israeli-Arab conflict. Um, but of course, there's us. There's the thousand of us who show up every night and bring into that theater what we think we know or don't know and what we feel about what's going on in the Middle East. So I want to ask you as we get started to sort of think about, is this or isn't this show about politics? I see you nodding, Oren, so why don't we start with you? I, 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 we've, we've talked about this a lot, <clears throat> and I think um, most things are, are inherently political just by the nature of them existing, that that's not an answer. Um, I think I was, I can only speak from my perspective. I, I, I truly think that the strongest political relationship that exists in the Barrymore every night is between the audience and the, and the play. Um, I've always felt like that the audience brings a lot of that, uh, exp their own experiences into the theater. So they're gonna see it, a, a lot of the audience members see it very differently. Um, but from my perspective, I have a, I have, I've always had a love and, a, and an, an interest in Israel and Middle Eastern culture. And I think as a producer, what interested me was the opportunity to explore and present a, a version of the Middle East that wasn't uh, weighted down in the sort of 24-hour news cycle version of what people understand the Middle East to be. So as a, again, as a producer, from my perspective, that, that was a motivating factor. Can we present the Middle East? Can we present Middle Eastern and Arabic music and Israeli music? And can we present this world to an audience that may not otherwise uh, see it that way? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that um, the... Uh, the fact that we get asked the question in the way that we do and with the frequency that we do is in a way what sort of also answers the question. The fact that we get asked that demonstrates that people are bringing that expectation or that thinking to, to the piece and, uh, and that the piece is causing them to, to wonder about what, I mean, first of all, when, you know, it is, does seem sort of like glib or a dodge to say that everything is political, but that's actually true. Like any public act or statement or everything about the way we live our lives, you know, when an athlete, you know, makes a public statement about politics or an actor does and people say like, well, don't get political. But if there's an urgent political need and you have a public platform and you don't say something political, that's also a political act. The, the choice that you're making is to be silent. Um, so everything is political in, in that sense. With this show in particular, um, because, and, and we took our cue completely from the, mu the movie here, because this is also how the movie deals with it, um, the fact that there 
uh, everyone expects the story to go in a particular way and then doesn't is the political statement because it demonstrates that um, uh, something else can happen when you strip things down to a very human level and the sort of basic human needs that the characters have for food, for shelter, yeah. and for connection. I, I think that there's I think that there's a, a moment in any interaction where there's a choice between am I going to yell at you about am I going to start a fight with you about what about uh, about a political conflict or am I just going to say uh, well I mean Katrina th th might, this might be something you would have a lot more to say about um, since you since you actually make this cho you make this choice on stage every night is there's this moment when someone says you can f choose between saying starting a fight or saying get the hell out of here the, you know the the soldiers the the uh, the band shows up there's no bus they're in the middle of nowhere there's no hotel and dina says um you could stay here she could just say well bye you're done but she says well you could stay here because as i think edmar you once said i ultimately most people would do that would say, oh yeah, you know, like uh, I guess I'm just saying that 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 <laughs> you know that 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 that's the that that's the thing. Is you you have a choice, and the choice that she makes, I think, and I don't know what you're doing internally there, is not to address that. Is to is to is to do something more basic and human. Do you have a? Well, yeah, and um, you can have a problem with someone's government, but that doesn't mean you have a problem with every person that lives. Right. in that country where that government is. So I think it's also a matter of, I have no beef with you. <laughs> we are just a person, I'm a person, uh, whatever, let's be people. <laughs> but I, I you can thought. feel when, when this group shows up at, at Dina's cafe, there is a little bit of, um, you know, wow, like here's a group of people from Egypt in some kind of goofy uniform you're referring to the leader as general. It's like a moment where your character has to make a choice. Yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what's the choice? I mean, the choice is to, is to confront or to welcome, yeah. I guess. Um, I suppose, but I think you learn really quickly, like there's no confrontation happening there's no yes. they're they're just as lost as anyone else like they're yes. lost people and right. as soon as that as soon as you realize there's no threat obviously then you right. then you can think with this instead of with your you know yes fight or flight response i guess i all i also always think that a lot of political conflict is between governments and not necessarily between people as you well as, as you said yeah. That's what I was going to say. I was going to put too fine a point on it by saying that the, the basic nature of, of human beings is something, something connective. And um, people love each other pretty naturally. And it's also the other flip side of being human and of survival is putting up these man-made borders, this matrix that we lay down on relationships, tribalism. Um, when he says, once you bring it down to the, to the, just the necessities of, you know, we need to eat, we need a place to sleep, that's when you see what, yeah. what a human is. There's, there, there's another way of answering this question that has to do with um, dramatic writing, playwriting, musicals as a form, which is that plays are not about what the content of the lines or the speeches or what people say or what's explicitly argued about. I mean, sometimes that can 
um, make clearer what something is about. Uh, but plays are about what happens in them. The idea they convey has to do with what's dramatized, like the choices people make and what happens as a result. So just because there isn't an explicit argument about politics verbalized in the piece, um, I think the events have a sort of very clear, I would say, among other things, political overtone. Yeah. So, so let's talk about how this project came about. And Oren, again, I'm going to start with you because the project started with you. So you, uh, you're a producer. Mm -hmm. uh, you're married to an Israeli. Mm -hmm. uh, you saw this movie, which came out in 2007, yep. and thought, I see something there. Yeah, I did. <clears throat> I joke because that's all I know how to do. Um, <laughs> no, I joke because I, I had this experience watching this film with my, my wife was sitting next to me. We were at the JCC on the Upper West Side, and the movie ended, and I had this, like, cloud-clearing moment in my mind. I thought, this seems so obvious to me that this needs to be staged. And, and the, all the reasons why I thought that ultimately ended up kind of repeating themselves and ultimately ended up being a lot of the sort of the momentum that this piece began to pick up over the years. But, uh, but it was clear to me that this guy, Iran Kolarin, who made the film, who, and he and I, and, and he and many of the people on this stage have become close since. Um, it was clear to me that he was telling a very theatrical story, just in, its, in the very nature of what this story was, felt very theatrical to me. Uh, it, it had all these elements of things that I love in plays. All my favorite plays are always about people being stuck in one space. I have this theory, though, that the thing that the reason you wanted to stage it, the thing that was missing, because it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie, and everyone should see it. Um, but the thing that was missing is that relationship between the live audience and the characters on the stage. Yeah. I mean, that's this theme. It's, well, it's like what we're experiencing right now, you know? Like it or not, you're here, right. and you're stuck. We're now in a relationship. For a few minutes. It would be very awkward if you got up and left right now. God, it's so good you weren't watching Bed Knobs and Broomsticks 10 years ago. I'm just thinking. Because so we'd be up here talking about that. It. Well, that, that to me was... A, was a, so that was there, obviously, in this show. If you've seen the film, this is about a group of musicians who end up stuck for 24 hours. I, I love the fact that it was in a contained amount of time. Um, I, I love the fact that there were musicians, although the idea of this becoming a musical was something I kind of grew into. It wasn't necessarily my impulse. Um, I didn't think about whether it was going to be a play or a musical. Uh, but the other part of it that I loved so much as a theater producer and as someone who loves the theater was the idea of language. I, I love language. I love theater as a, as, a, as a form that celebrates language and that explores language and that challenges the use of it with, with guys like this. Um, and I love the idea that all these people, purely by the, the, the matter of circumstance, were being forced to speak in their second language. Funny enough, that was the very reason why the film ended up not getting nominated for the Best mm -hmm. Picture Award for Best Foreign Film, because the year that it was to be nominated, it was discredited because it had too much English in it. And it was so circumstantial, right? Here were these guys. English was the only language they had in common. So what I loved about that as a piece of theater was that it forced the characters to be very careful with their words. And it took great effort to, to say everything. And to me, that was a theatrical concept. And I, and I think that concept has informed not only how I've chosen to produce the play, but how we promote, how, how we use our advertising. Everything we do, I'm constantly asking my teams to think about the use of words and to be careful with your words, the way these characters have to be careful with their words. 
Um, but I told Iran that, and, and Iran, Iran Kolarin was like, I, it took me like six months to get a hold of him, and I finally got him on the phone, he's like, oh, this is a terrible idea. This is <laughs> he's like, I see cats in suits jumping and dancing. And he, he never saw a musical before or a play, and he thought it was terrible, and it took me years, a year and a half, to finally get him to give me the rights. And the thing that got him to say yes was I said, look, you're a filmmaker, you've worked on this show for 10 years of your life, this film, my belief is that if you understood theater as well as you understand film, you would have made it a play. And when I said that to him, he was like, oh, okay, you can do it. All right, I mean, it was, so, that was uh, it. yeah. Um, so you are a playwright and the son of Israeli immigrants. Uh, tell me a little about how you got involved with this, why this was a project you wanted to work on, and also about the choice to make it a musical rather than a straight play. So that, that last choice had been made before I was contacted. Oren had reached the point where he decided, okay, this should be a musical, and that was when I was contacted about the project, as if I'd be interested in doing, uh, adapting uh, the film uh, as, a, as a book and collaborating with a, with a composer. And... and um, uh, I had worked on a couple of musicals before this, which, which among other things meant that I was at the point where I would become very choosy about saying yes to musicals. Because when I first started, I had no idea how hard they are. You know, people tell you, oh, musicals are hard. They're really hard. They're very difficult to get right. They take years and years. They're really, they're just very, it's a very challenging and tricky form that's really rewarding if they work because they can be so powerful when they work. So, so for me, it had to pass a couple of, um, uh, like it had to clear a couple of bars uh, that I don't think I would have been able to articulate at the time. But looking back, I think I think the reason I said yes was first of all you have to respect and love the source material. I think you always get yourself into trouble if you're like, well, the movie's not that good or this uh, this is kind of terrible. Like you have to respect something about what's there. About and I loved the movie when I watched it. I thought it was great. The other thing is that I saw why it should be a musical, not just because. Um, there's musicians in it, although that helps, but because music is a subject of so much of conversation, it's a thing that everybody bonds over. It almost felt like music itself was one of the metaphors of the piece. And then, as you said, I'm the child of Israeli immigrants, would also passed sort of why me test. Like, you, I, as you get choosier about jobs, one, one thing to keep in mind is why it should be me specifically as opposed to somebody else specific or anybody else. And um, I've, you, I've used this joke before, but, and it's also true, but I, I like it, so I'm gonna say it again, which is, that, <laughs> which is that one test I've started to use is that I imagine that one of my peers like, or rivals has been given the job. Yeah. And then I, I see whether that would annoy me. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, if I, and if I wouldn't care, I'm like, well, maybe then I should let it go. But if I'm like, oh no, like I would, if someone else was doing this, I would wonder why is that not me? Um, so I was like, all right, maybe I should take this one on. So yeah, so I said yes. Uh, so David. Uh, I just want to say why me is one of the most Jewish <laughs> things you can say. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you'd be saying it in a different context. Yeah. Yeah, so. All right, so let's talk about why you. Um, so uh, you had been, uh, you had worked on a number of musicals before this, The Full Monty, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and nominated for a Tony for all of them. Um, the, they all have a very different sound from this one. So how did you figure... And from each other. And from each other. Be, yeah. How did you start to think about what you would do uh, if you took this on. And we should mention that you also have a sort of family connection here. Your dad is from Lebanon? Well, my yes, my dad's dad was, dad's dad was, was from, from Lebanon and was living in Lebanon when I was a kid. Right. 
um, mother's side of the family, Jewish, Long Island. Yep. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, the why me of it was, was, was very evident very quickly to me when I saw the movie. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I knew that I could do it, um, or at least I knew I could uh, make a good attempt at it because I actually love Arabic classical music. Um, I, I don't have an encyclopedic, encyclopedic knowledge of it, but I have, um, I've, known, I've known and loved it since I was a kid um, in the same way that maybe you, you, know, you remember a certain kind of home cooking from when you were a kid, because uh, my dad took me to Lebanon when I was like six, I think, or seven, and uh, that's when I first heard Um Kultum and those orchestral uh, classical, they call it oriental music, classical Arabic music, and it's just, it's stuck with me. Um, every now and then, you know, I would revisit stuff. Uh, I'd hear something playing like in a shawarma shop, you know. <laughs> there was one place on the, on the Upper West Side, um, it's probably gone by now. They'd always have good music and I always ask what it was, you know, and then I'd go try to find it. Now that you can find anything on the internet. So, um, I, I just, I just kind of knew that I could approach it musically in an authentic way and also in a way that was satisfying to me, hopefully to audiences. But I also knew that it was, uh, that the subject matter, after seeing the movie, the movie is so deeply spiritual without ever saying anything about it. You're left with this really, this very deep feeling. And I think, I think that Iran is probably an atheist. I, I think, it, you know, I mean, he would probably be mad if I said he it's wasn't. Israeli. He's Israeli. Um, but but it's, a, it's such a spiritual movie. It's like, it's like, I don't think the word God is mentioned once, but it's there all, all through the movie. And I thought that's really interesting because the stuff that I write for my, when I write, do albums stuff, not for shows, often deals with that, with those kind of issues, like, you know, death yeah. and spirituality and connection and stuff like that. So David, well, you're I was the, just going to say, can I say you, you could find two writers with this, with identical like bona fides to these guys and they wouldn't be the right writers. Right. You, you know what I mean? You could find one of Levin, you know, his parents were mm -hmm. Israel, you know, you could find those, but the, the mixture of kind of um, really, really, really dry wit and um, uh, like deep sort of passion and kind of, if I may, ruin things by saying sadness or longing in both of these writers is like, is their, their ultimate, um, is their ultimate, not personally, just in their work. The, the, well, the success of the show yeah, has yeah. made me less sad. Yeah, so yeah, I'm worried yeah. now. That. But, it, but it's, it's, it's an, and the point I wanted to make, if I may, sorry to, to wail you, is, is what, it's what's, endlessly fascinating about, you know, people ask, where did you guys come up with this? Because it seems like these two writers said, we have a passion for this project, so we're going to do it, as opposed to ultimately, if I may say, they were hired. We were all hired to do it, but they uh, poured them, you know what I mean? You can be hired to do something and then take it on as if it was your own in such a way to make something that I think, I mean, I, I I'm involved with it, I'm involved with the project, I directed it, but I'm also able to step, stand outside the writing of it and, and sort of understand how profoundly good it is, you know. So talk a little about how you figured out how to stage this, because on the film, 
you know, there are these wide shots of the desert and there are these close-ups and there's so much silence. How do you go about translating this to a work for the stage? Well, uh, that's a good question, and I wish I had an answer. Uh, um, well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, Edmar and I knew each other, and I'd met David because I had this enormous passion for one of his musicals. I did not know his first two musicals well. I only knew Women on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown really well, and I had never met him, so I assumed he was this sort of like heartbroken, uh, fragile gay man. You know what I mean? Who, who had been, who had been, had been sort of trampled on like Tennessee Williams by, <laughs> by life and love, and he's decidedly not. And, and, um, and, but I loved, but what I, I loved about those two scores and then went back and understood about the first two scores was, and, and he actually writes about it explicitly in The Band's Visit, which is uh, that there is a groove to his music. There is kind of a a propulsive forward groove, even a very slow groove sometimes, but it's always, always in a groove. So no matter, even if it's utterly still, it's always kind of moving forward. Even if it's like completely spare, it's always moving forward. And I know you could sort of say that about all music, but I don't think you quite can about everybody's in the same way you sort of feel as you experience, you know, waiting to bum, bum, ba -dum, ba, the, the first groove goes and that, and so even in the utter spareness of the film, the stillness, the spareness of the book, um, uh, it is completely still while creating this energy that is always kind of like just held up. And if you look at anybody, just anybody, look at someone else, look at stare at someone living their life, they could be utterly still, they could be staring at their phone, but you can see that, there's a, that they're, they're held up by like energy and neurons and things. So it was understanding that Understanding that very basic life force, and David writes about it, it's got the beat of your heart, yeah. you know. Um, uh, so I know you were asking sort of a more practical question. I sort of like the practical question, but it was there's a feel to the thing that needed to be um, constantly, slightly floating, always moving forward while appearing to be stagnant. Uh, the illusion of stagnation while being utterly, because these people are stuck but they're waiting, they have not given up. The first song is waiting, and waiting is a really active thing. So you just accepted and navigated with, you know, the sequence of events, the order of things, how many times we were gonna travel from one place to the other, and then start to create a physical production that could almost be in constant, slight motion the entire time. That was sort of the, and it took us a while to kind of articulate that, and I haven't even articulated it very well here. It's something you have to go minute by minute by minute while you're rehearsing and creating and designing, but it was to create something. You know, one of the things was to have the turntable all, almost always moving very, very slightly, so that even in utter stillness, the walls are always moving a little bit, the music's always going, the beat's always there, even in space, even in, when there's space and spareness. Um, uh, and so, and so that it's 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 from the material, you know what I mean. It, but it's it's was it was trying to be smart enough to know that you had to make it out of what it was. That it had to always come from the writing. And we really lucked out because this all of those things like mining simplicity and mining the very basic, real stuff of human interaction is right in in David's wheelhouse. Um, and it's, it is such a spare and delicate piece that it, it, I mean, I don't know that it's true of any piece to say like, oh, that directs itself. Like that's yeah. probably never true. It's definitely not true of this. Like this was very ruinable. 
and in, and and he and 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 we kept not ruining. Yeah, it. but but he really did the well. He did the opposite. He found he sort of helped like really lift it towards its like best possible form. And that uh, you may not even remember this, David, but like because it was bef you said it before much of the score had been written. But that idea of constant forward momentum. One of I mean I knew as he said we knew each other already. I knew his work. I, I had a suspicion he was the right guy, but. But that um, from one of our first conversations about it, you said that one of the things you liked about the piece was that it took place over the course of one night and that the way it should move, that you wanted us to always, that, that you wanted it to feel like, like the sun sets, the moon moves across the sky, the sun rises, and that's the show. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, and that, you know, over the next two years or whatever, like, yeah. that is what, you know, he managed to make. All right, I want to start to move toward our, our first song, uh, which is going to be... interesting stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, Omar Sharif, and if someone can bring out a microphone. But Katrina, as, as we do, can you tell us a little about how you think about who Dina is and what's going on in this moment when this song arises? Um, this song happens when uh, Dina convinces Tufik the the leader of the Egyptian Ceremonial Police Orchestra to go out for some snacks at the uh, at this restaurant, but it's really just a kind of a dive dinery. There's no one there. There's like two people there. The food's not that good, but it's something to do. So they're there, and um, she's he's a bit um, held and reserved, and she's trying to find a way to connect with this man. And um, so she asks him, what, what kind of music do you play in your band? And he surprises her by saying that they play classical Arabic music. She assumed it was like army music. And she discovers that they have this connection to um, classical Arabic music that she used to listen to as a kid. Um, and then she goes on and on about it in this song. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, well, why don't we hear it and then we'll talk more. <laughs> Katrina Lank. He was cool to the mayor of the fair of Rome. 
Um, so I went back to the show this afternoon and I, I was struck once again by this, yeah, I was there. Yeah. I was struck once again by this exchange between Dina and Tufik in which she asks him what it's like to perform before an audience, what it feels like. And I wonder if I ask you that question, what is it like for you to be, to get up every night and to perform before people? To have all the eyes for you and all the people <laughs> waiting for you. That's interesting. I don't know that I've thought about it so specifically. I think maybe now I should do a pantomime <laughs> of what it's like. Uh, uh, it's terrifying, and it f you feel a deep um, responsibility to make sure the story is told well and that people are understanding what's happening and that you are there to support your fellow actors and to do all of the things that, um, like make sure you do your job <laughs> to hold up uh, whatever you are supposed to hold up. Um, so I, I guess it feels like a profound and um, moving responsibility, if that makes any sense. Uh, you, I, I called Katrina maybe four weeks ago <laughs> for some help with a song I was writing for some a different project because I needed to sort of, why do you do, remember? Like, I forget what the question was, but it's sort of like, why, why do you do this? Why do you do what you do? You know, like, what is it? And you said, um, you were saying, you're creating something, you're creating something, and then the audience, if they get it, that's what I'm remembering so, yeah. so well. What, do you remember what you yeah, said? Yeah, I guess it's the, the sense of like, um, you you create something and the the joy if the the audience understands what you've created and can come into the place you've created with you there there's i mean fundamentally i guess it's like a connection but that's 
that that's the thing that makes me go on every night and want to do this thing just to like just to yeah i guess it's really hard to explain they, yeah, no but, but if but, they if they and now get it i don't mean get it like oh you figured it out or but but get it like if you understood what i meant is that what yeah, you mean yeah, that, like, so the desire is to be understood and is to it? reflect back what yeah. the uh, yeah i guess to be understood and for the audience to felt to be to feel understood as well so it's a, a, a general sense of hey we're all uh, we're not alone i guess right. and and what about dina appealed to you like why was this a role you wanted to embrace and what what were your struggles in sort of finding your inner, inner Dina? Um, I, I, I wanted to do it because it was a job. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so uh, number one, that was really exciting. Uh, and also, you know, I fell in love with the movie, I fell in love with the story, I fell in love with the script, and I fell in love with the music. So it was um, kind of an... And, and the team, the creative team. So it was just like an instant of falling in love. And um, I fell in love with Dina. And she, what was the other part of the question? Like, what were the challenges in figuring um, out how to become Dina? Uh, she's so grounded and aware and connected with all of her, her heart. Her heart, her mind, her body are all sort of connected. And I, that, that was a, a challenge to find out how to how to exist like that because I'm, and then I'm, and then I'm, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so she's uh, that was a big challenge, uh, and also just to stand still and be okay standing still and that everyone's looking at you while you're standing still and it's fine and actually what's supposed to be happening and Cromer helped us a lot with that too and. Um, that's a theme throughout the the show of how, how do you be still, like you were saying, and also not be still, like something's happening while you're still, and that's also an engaging thing. Right. So, Ariel, there's been a lot of talk, uh, well, for years, but especially this year, about uh, representation in the entertainment industry, and this show has occasioned quite a bit of conversation about the representation of Middle Easterners. I know... Uh, your dad's family moved from Yemen to Israel yeah, to California. That's right. that's right, yeah. Um, and I know you've talked about struggling with your own heritage and sort of feeling something new about it through doing this show. Can you tell us a little about that? I certainly can. I mean, <clears throat> so, I mean, the, the, the story starts for me as sort of a, a young kid growing up in the Bay Area in California without a single peer or role model who shared my own background. And so um, it was extremely difficult uh, growing up as a Middle Eastern American. In fifth grade, 9-11 uh, occurred, which, which though I'm from sort of a Jewish Yemeni background, somebody who looked like me became stigmatized relatively instantaneously. Um, and so for like eight years of my life, I concealed my identity and pretended to be anything but Middle Eastern, almost to the point where I avoided being um, in front of my father in public. Um, so... <laughs> When this show, when, when, when I found out that the show was going to happen, actually one of, my, one of my actual best friends, Itai Benson, is in, is in the show with us. And, and, and we saw that a show that was sort of going to have dignified, amazing, well-rounded characters with beautiful arcs, uh, 
heading, well, at that time, it wasn't going to go to Broadway. It was going to off-Broadway. We knew that we needed to do it um, because we realized that it was going to be sort of a seismic opportunity for us to represent ourselves in ways that we'd never thought possible. Uh, I can tell you growing up, uh, even through college, I was encouraged to uh, prepare August Wilson monologues, uh, Latino monologues, Stephen Adley uh, Gerges. Um, and so there was no even thought in my mind that I could have a career um, proudly and honestly as a Middle Eastern person. And so what ends up becoming so funny about this experience for me is that though it's my Broadway debut, uh, which, which, which is an exciting... It's, it's a really uh, terrifically exciting uh, a professional moment for anybody to celebrate. Um, frankly, the, the cultural moment for me is far more exciting. I mean, uh, myself and I'm, sh I'm sure lots of the cast my castmates get um, DMs on Instagram and on Twitter from kids in the Middle Excuse East. Excuse me, we're at the 92nd Street Y. That's direct messages. Direct messages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get direct messages, I mean, from kids. <laughs> No, f from kids who, who are so moved, who may now see a possibility for their lives that they may not have seen uh, previously. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, what's so funny about this whole thing is that, like, as I, you know, developed my career, it's kind of a me, me, me. Oh, my God, I want this. I want to get this. I want to achieve this. And now that I'm here... I'm realizing very, very quickly that it really can't be about that because that's an unsustainable way of, 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 of living. And I think these guys have seen me sort of transform over the course of this. I mean, last year during the award ceremonies for the off-Broadway, I was like this, and now, and now you guys sort of see me evolve. Well, but do you mean, do, do, do you mean the, is the second half of that that it can't be about me, it has to be about that someone else is seeing, it has to be about the audience, the people who are seeing it. It has to be about the audience, yeah. it has to be about connecting, it has to be about like humanity, Beautiful. what stories are made for. Um, and, and so this has been extremely uh, transformative. And I mean, it was only in the last three years that I was admitting publicly and even privately to friends that I was uh, a Middle Eastern person. Um, well, let's bring the microphone back out and talk about um, Khaled's song about love. Yeah. Uh, so this is sort of midway through the show in this roller disco. Right. Uh, and tell us about, I'm sorry? <laughs> tell us about what's going on in this scene. Yeah, so basically uh tofik and and dina uh played by katrina link uh have sort of went off but i've been sort of uh summoned to stay at her apartment and i my backstory is that i decide to creep out the house when they leave <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and i end up uh sort of asking this kid named poppy uh if i can hang out with him and he's uh i guess an introvert and he has panic attacks around women and his and his best friend has sort of organized this date for him and so now uh we end up at this sort of really desolate roller rink i think that's the common thread that, that, that the place where you eat is, is is empty and the place where we party is also empty yeah. uh, uh uh and and so um i sort of he described as i see him freeze up around this woman i see him literally describe and go through a panic attack in the middle of this song uh, to the point where he gets um, extremely deflated. 
and it awakens something in my character that perhaps the audience may not have seen for the first half of the show, which is really the desire to help somebody and, and, and take care of somebody going through a really, really difficult time. Um, and sort of through this song, coaching him the process of connecting uh, with this woman. And as you guys hear, there's gonna be like a 30 second uh, uh, trumpet solo. Uh, and in that moment, just know that there's a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm helping him on a bench sort of <laughs> figure out how to deal uh, with, this, with this girl he's on a date with. Great. Um, mic gonna need that so mic stand. Do you need a mic yeah. stand or are you I doing it hand up? Oh, you don't want Great. a mic stand? Uh, no, no, no. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Ariel Stashel.
That was fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. You. So I want to talk about, I think one of the things that always surprises people about musicals is how long they take to make. Um, so, Orrin, I guess it's been a decade since you thought, oh, there's a, there's a show here. What, it gets what? longer every year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wh why, why is this process so long? Well, it, my, my complete uh, inefficiency. Um, I, I, like I said, I actually developed this for a long time as a play. I had seen a production of, of a play at one point during the many years that I was developing this called Brief Encounters. Yeah which was at St. Anne's Warehouse before it came uptown. But I remember there was this sort of play with music thing that I thought was cool. I'm, I don't come from musical theater, so the rules of musical theater didn't really apply to me in terms of how I thought about this until I realized that they were more commercial. Um, and I, uh, so by the time I actually decided to make it a musical and hire these guys, I don't think it was that, how long, how long was it from the day I hired you guys until we went to the Atlantic? It, it was about three years. So which, which is actually pretty, pretty fast. fast. I mean, Although so I had it for seven years, the last three of which I actually decided what it was going to be. Uh, and and, and um, Yazbek, sometimes when, when I say that uh, it took three years and that's fast, he then points out that Full Monty took one year. But, but that's, I feel like that's also when... Also, the band's visit is only as long as the first act of a traditional musical. That's, so. that's true. And I also feel like that, that you probably benefited from not knowing that you weren't supposed to write it that fast. It's the, 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 the sort of... Yes, Full Monty was a, was, an, was a complete anomaly because the director also, it was his ballpark, you know, because yeah. it was like regional theater, he ran it, you know, it just, but, if, but had, had you come to us and said, we're doing this in a year, we would have done it in a year, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oops. I'm not, no, I'm not, say, I'm not saying was, that he should have done that. It's impossible because... I wasn't paying them by the hour. Right, <laughs> I mean... The truth is, the truth is, everybody has three, four, five, six projects going on. So it's very hard to do something like that. That's yeah. part of it. Another part of it is that is that it takes. There's huge. Um, it's much more complicated to see what you've got. Uh, it takes a week of rehearsal and like, you know, everybody learning the songs, and it's much harder to to evaluate a musical in process. And uh, and so it's just there's. It's hard and it's expensive. Yeah. It's like and, deeply expensive. Yeah. yeah. So there's to like. Get, yeah. yeah. So you need, and in order to get something right, you need to get it wrong a few times. Since so you need enough time to get it wrong enough times to get it right, it's, yeah. So, David Cromer, I want to ask you, I'll start with you and others can jump in about the role of nonprofits in musical development. So, I guess the last four uh, best musical winners for the Tony Awards all came out of nonprofits. There was Dear Evan Hansen, which started Arena Stage and Second Stage, and Hamilton at the Public, and Fun Home at the Public, and A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder at Hartford. Uh, this show started at the Atlantic stage. What is it about the nonprofit world? Uh, like, what's going on? Why is it desirable? How is it different? I mean, we think of the musical theater world as so intensely commercial, and yet there are these exceptions that seem to be excelling. Well, I think regional, I think you, going to a not-for-profit could be considered the modern equivalent of going out of town which is what they used to do with musicals. They'd go to New Haven, or they'd go to Philadelphia, or they'd go to Boston. And I think that's po it's possible that that's taken the place of that. Um, I can, you can only imagine, if you look at the numbers, what it, went, what, it, what it used to be to put on a musical versus what the millions and millions and millions of dollars it is now, and the unions, and the space, and the, 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 the real estate, and there's fewer theaters, so there's stuff like that. But I think it is a not-for-profit has a model by which you can 
Uh, you can function within a season. You could do it for a set amount of time. There is a little bit of budget, so it only requires enhancement. And you have sort of the ability to fail because the expectation is not, they're not going to pounce on it. So it is the equivalent of out of town. And often you go out of town. You, you did it. What, what did you do? You uh, did Full Monty in Los Angeles, right? Uh, San Diego. San Diego. At, at the Old Globe, which I think right. is not for profit. Yes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this might not be true because that sampling just said no no not okay. what you just said anything you ever said yeah, yeah, what, I'm, <laughs> what i'm about to say may be false um uh, uh I can but, tell but it's it suggested is. by by the list you just read and i wonder i mean it's a pretty small sampling size but i wonder if partly it's that uh musicals are hugely expensive and so it's for an, even though a nonprofit may do a musical in their season it's almost unheard of that they don't at least already have some commercial enhancement usually there's some sort of commercial producer involved but it is this marriage of a commercial producer and an institution that is doing things, you know, at least theoretically, uh, out of the artistic passion and interest of the institution, of the artistic director. So it does, I think, lend itself a little bit more um, to work that might not simply be like a commercial cash grab or that might be more interesting or more risky or more adventurous. Or that doesn't have a title that, you know, yeah, that yeah, you've heard of, yeah. Right. smells money, you know. Yeah, yeah. and money. so and so it's maybe not totally surprising that you're at least a little bit more likely to end up with more interesting, unique or unusual work that way. I also think too there's a there's the a, a very practical thing which is when you my experience on Broadway has been when you do a commercial production, you have to hire everything. You have to hire a scene shop. You have to hire production managers. You have to hire everyone. All you are is a producer with an office and an idea and the rights to something and maybe some people with money. It's, you have to hire everyone. A not-for-profit is an institution which has a costume shop, that has a scene shop, that has, you know, that, that has a marketing department, that has, that's, it, that's baked into that the institution. So That has a subscriber base. So the money is all going on stage. The money you're spending is all going on stage instead of into infrastructure. I think what you just said is actually the most important thing. All the other things that exist, from my point of view as a commercial producer, it's the subscriber base. I mean, what you're doing when you go to a good nonprofit is you're, you're, you're getting access to their audience and you're able to put your, your show in front of an audience that's a certain type of audience that will help inform how you do it again. Right. Um, Katrina, I know um, uh, you and I'm not sure how many others up here went to Israel uh, between the uh, off-Broadway and the Broadway run. All of everyone, everyone, everyone here went. Yeah. Great. Uh, can you, uh, the, the town where the show takes place is fictional, but it's based on a real place. Can you talk a little about what you did and how it informed your thinking? Yes. Uh, the town that, this, that um, Betatikva in the show is based on is called Yerucham. And it's in the middle of nowhere. We, we drove from Tel Aviv to Yerucham through two, two hours maybe through just desert. Like just watching the green go away and then it's just beige, just beige, 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 beige. And then so you're on this road that seems to go forever and then there's this one little road that goes like this off the main road and there are these beautiful lamps, these beautiful street lamps that go like curly cues at the top all along this road and that's Yerucham and the, the road goes in and then it just stops <laughs> and then there's desert, and then the big road keeps going. So it's really how it's described in, in the show. Um, and we got to perform some music there uh, for the citizens of yeah. Yerucham, yeah. Um, which yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds it funny. Is. 
Uh, um, it was like kids riding by on bikes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just people just standing and staring like, what are these people doing here? Um, what's going on? Uh, and uh, we got to also eat a meal um, in, in the home of a, someone that lived there. They cooked this amazing meal for us. Um, uh, we got to sit out. So after we performed for the, the folks there, we went out and sat like in the desert at a fire pit, which wasn't far because the desert is just like right there. Um, sat around a fire pit and hung out with people and played music there. And uh, it was really a, an amazing thing to get to do. And, the, and well, the, you know, we were in this van a, a lot, <laughs> and it was all of us, and also Georgia Bood, who's in our show, and um, I think, and oh, and Iran, of course, Iran Colrin, with a Hulk with a camera crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, but the thing that I remember, you know, all of that stuff. But every minute in that car, someone was playing something. It was usually George playing the oud, but we had two dumbecks. Um, you know, we just had a and, a and a violin, and Katrina was playing, and so it was really very cool. There was music inside that van all the time. And you wrote a new piece of music for the show that we replaced something with in that van, yeah. right? Yeah, George handed me the oud, which is not, which I'm not a very good player of, um, and I just, I even have it on my on my voice memo thing on my phone, and you can hear me going, playing this little melody, and then going. George, what do you think of this? And then you hear George going, oh, that's good. That's very authentic. Right. He, right. he uses the word authentic. Right. And, uh, and yeah, and that became that song, Soraya, that's in our... That's in well, our that's show. an excellent transition uh, to this question from Brian in the audience tonight who has seen the show five times. Oh, can we see uh, your... Can you raise your hand, Brian? <laughs> Brian. Thank you. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Uh, Only five? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, David Yazbek, uh, Brian asks if you can talk a little about the Middle Eastern uh, music's influence on the show, both on the score and on the story itself. Well, I mean, it's infused, you know, throughout. Um, it's interesting. What is it about any genre of music that makes it that genre? Um, there's something about the uh, there's something about the modalities of uh, Arabic classical music. Um, there's this. There's this use of microtones. Um, it just feels like you're, there's some lemony, extra turmeric, you know, flavor to it. You know, it's like, um, and I, I, I just listened and listened and listened and thought and thought and thought. And I did buy an oud and play it. So, you know, it doesn't have frets, so that helps. And, um, and then the other aspect is the, the groove. I mean, it's a very specific, Groove, uh, the the darbuka, um, you know, they're, they're very. There are a lot of rhythms. The, every one of them has a name, and uh, and it, and it's just infectious stuff. And you listen to it enough, and you get hooked on it. And then it, it the way I work is is often that stuff just it's there, and without thinking about it, it comes up and it comes out. So I'm very proud of the of the pieces of music played by the by our spectacular band. I mean, really, the, some of the best musicians I've ever played with, and I played with some really great musicians. And I just, I just love those moments, because I feel like, oh, I've served, I've served these musicians something they can, you know, they can chew on. Um, and then there's songs that are clearly, you know, book songs or character songs that still, you know, you still have the flavor. So I, I get that. I hope that answered your question. I have no idea, but I'll see you the sixth time. 
Um, why don't I jump in here and ask maybe both Davids to talk a little about the implications of the musical choices for the casting, because obviously you have people on stage who are both acting and playing music, and the musical instruments are not all part of the standard Broadway repertoire. So how did you go about finding the kind of performers you needed? Can I, I'll just put a, one quick plug in, because my, my very good friend, and he's the drummer in my band and co-produces all, all my cast albums with me, is Dean Sharon now. He's also the contractor of our show. And a large part of that was him scouring the tri-state and beyond. <laughs> you know, I mean, our Darbuka player, Osama, is from, well, he's from Alexandria. Um, I don't know how Sharon now found this guy. Don't you, Do you know, know that how? story? Well, he was looking at another drummer on a video oh, that's right. of a wedding. He was watching. Someone said, "Look at this! Look at this musician." Maybe it was a, a, a maybe it was an oud player. And he was looking at another musician, and he said, "Wait, who's that yeah. guy?" Yeah. He's the most charismatic. He's. A, I don't know anything about music, and I know he's a brilliant drummer. <laughs> and he's. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's someone. I think Ari was just saying he actually he does a wedding. He's. He plays at a bar mitzvah or a wedding or, a, you know, like at an event almost every night. Yeah. If you look at after his Instagram the after, after the show, his Instagram is either him posing with celebrities at our show or him posing with belly dancers at a wedding, yeah. you know, or him with a bar mitzvah boy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just constant. And he actually played, I think you said he played a wedding in Coney Island between shows. Between shows. <laughs> We're in Midtown. He went to Coney Island. <laughs> and he puts these bands together, and he has a darbuka that lights up when he plays it for the weddings. Yeah. Uh, and I think he has a few um, taxi medallions as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the, 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 he came out a bunch of ways. You had to find out what David and Dean wanted, and the orchestrator what they wanted played. And so you found that out. Then we sort of negotiated how many members of the band. There's eight members in the band. In the movie, there were seven members of the band downtown. We added Nate. David insisted on insisted endlessly. And we didn't really see it. He kept saying, we have to have an onstage drummer. We have to have an onstage drummer. We have to. And we're all like, I don't think it's going to make that big a difference. And of course, it made all the difference <laughs> in the world. Uh, so we're going to listen to him a lot. And um, uh, and and there were, and uh, you know, uh, they've found this before I was involved, found this brilliant actor named Georgia Bood, who is a wonderful, wonderful actor uh, uh, of Lebanese descent, who it turns out, apparently, is a world-class Arabic musician. He's only 27 years old, but he's been playing since he was a child. He plays the, he's the man who plays the violin in the show. He also plays the oud, but he's the violinist who plays that crazy violin solo. Um, in, in The Beat of Your Heart. For those of you who have seen the show, he stands there and just does this crazy sawing the violin and shredding it. And, uh, and so then that became, that character does those two things. So then they wrote around him what he could do. There was sometimes conflict about that. There'd be sometimes like the musical director and David when we were downtown rehearsing something, they'd come and say, oh, we have to have George in this number. I'm like, George isn't in that scene. And they'd go like, well, we'll figure it out. So we would sort of rewrite it. So, so his character leaves and goes somewhere else and, and you know, and like he's has also to go get the, milk. He, and, he's also the know. violinist in the, in, in, our, the pit. in our band. So he's down right. in the pit playing, then right. he's up and then he's right. acting. And, right. right. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, there, there are, and then you know, and then, then, then there are people who are primarily musicians, and they had to be sort of coaxed toward a certain amount of acting. There are four men on stage, 
uh, very, 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 very shatteringly wonderful musicians. And as I said, I, even I know it, uh, that they're great. And they, they uh, are not actors at all and are doing some of the most beautiful acting in the show because you said, you know, just do what you do. So they just stare. <laughs> I said, if you get bored, you're bored. They're like, um, you know, um, so it's just built around what we needed, what we had, and then what we could make out of those two things. Great. Uh, Ari, uh, this question's for you. What is your process in finding your inner Chet Baker? <laughs> oh, I've, I didn't know who he was when I <laughs> had to audition, so probably bothered a lot of people at my local coffee shop listening to it. Um, what is my process? Mm, listening to it a lot, but I, I, the truth is, I mean, some people come to me sometimes, they're like, how do you channel that sound? And it really was sort of a mixture of, we have an awesome music director named Andrea Grody, who is exhausting and amazing. <laughs> uh, be, because, I mean, there's literally not a, a note a vowel or a consonant that, that she's not aware of, that she hasn't sort of meticulously um, directed me towards. Uh, and so it really was like one of the hardest things in the world to sort of find that. In fact, I will, I'll tell a small anecdote, which is that uh, I, I auditioned a few times, and before my final... How many times did you audition? Seven. <laughs> and, Just wanted to be and, sure. And, and, no, but it's really funny because... <laughs> because uh, 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 Somehow you didn't have my email, so David sent me a Facebook message, and he was like, "You sing really nicely, and it's almost too nice." Uh, and so, so from that point forward, so there's just a lot of sort of evolving. Where do you put vibrato in? Where do you not put vibrato in? Uh, what consonants? And then on top of that, you're talking about uh, because he has an Egyptian dialect. Where do you roll your R's? How much dialect can you have? So, so it was a very, 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 very long. Uh, process of, of finding my Egyptian version of Chepe. You have a much bigger voice than him, so it was also about saying, like, you don't have to use it. In this instance, it's okay, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's okay to use less and less, and then it became about level of effort it was, that a it cool was, guy makes. It was a very less. interesting process because, you know, you were thinking, like, well, Okay, so how do you get more towards the Chet Baker thing? Well, Chet Baker, you know, his, his whole singing uh, technique was centered around being this close to the mic and just singing. And then we realized, you know. Yeah, like two, like two months into the rehearsal process as I was like whispering the song, <laughs> then we get to the theater and everyone's like, we can't hear you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so it, it really, I mean. But that's the thing about musical theater. I mean, I, I come from playing with a band and singing into a microphone. Right. So for me, it's been, this, it's been a similar but much longer, because I'm much older than you, much, much older. Um, <laughs> this thing of sort of like where are the lines what are the rules what's the tone it's like that's what all of what musical theater is about yeah how far can we go how far can't we go this show was that was like really really hard to get the tone yeah. get the tone and, and can, I, can I this is one thing i sort of piggyback on both of those points is 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 it's interesting and it's sort of just always a lesson i think it's a lesson or it was a lesson i've learned a long time ago which is you can rehearse with him singing like chet baker as if he's singing very quietly into a microphone. And then you get to the theater and realize it has to be much bigger. And most people would just say, throw away everything we did before and just suddenly have him be big. Like you, 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 you create something you love, 
you find the first obstacle, and then you say, you give up and say, screw it, we have to throw away all this other work. Instead of doing a lot of work to translate this into this so that it had the same quality, and it just was, it's more work, and people get more frustrated, but it turned out to be worth it because it isn't him just belting the song like in a very sort of ordinary Broadway sh show way, which is simply just not what we were trying to do. When you have a you show know? that's to a large extent about improv improvisation in an art form that is usually nothing about improvisation, especially Broadway, because it can't be, because everything's on a track and everything's computerized. When you have a show that's often about silence and it's a musical, and it is a musical comedy, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, that's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> and we all did it. We all put that work in. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you just go to from your training, you know, or from what you've done before. And uh, this was a pretty unique tone Great. that we all had to learn from. So we have six minutes left. I have three questions for you. So uh, let's zip through them. Uh, this one's from Lightning the audience. Uh, th this is a sort of two-part question about color choices. So David Cromer, I guess we'll start with you. Uh, this person asks uh, if you can talk a little bit about the color palette in the show, especially the use of red and purple, and also asks, where is Dina's dress from? I do not know where Dina's dress is from. I do know we have bought every existing version, of, every existing copy we could find of it. <laughs> she has like eight of them. The costume designer has like eight of them held away somewhere. Do you know where it's from? Uh, no, they were also modified, so you couldn't get this dress anywhere. Right, it's, right. It's been changed. Right. It's been painted and, and painted and, and altered. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. um, Oh, uh, color choices. She wears a red dress in the movie, and so uh, we just started to explore. We thought, oh, we think that might be nice. We did not feel like we had to slavishly copy the film. We didn't feel like we had to do like say what you do if you make a musical of Singing in the Rain, which is he's got to jump up and down in the water, and he's got you know we didn't have to do all those things, but we wanted to kind of suggest we liked that it was a pop of color. Um, uh, we liked the. We wanted to embrace the kind of beigeness of that world, but then also what are beyond that, behind that one color that maybe is not the prettiest color on earth, sand, but what are the rich colors within that? Um, and then what does that look like in the dark? So it's, a, it's an ombre from the, the set is an ombre from the ground to the sky. Um, we just, the, 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 um, the uniforms are an invention of the Israeli film that's not a, that's not an orchestral, an Egyptian army, I mean, Egyptian police force orchestra uniform. I think they're green. Um, but we just liked it. It's a beautiful color. And she found this bolt of cheap fabric, and we bought all of it, um, <laughs> that changes color like crazy, like crazy in the show. Like, just watch the blue uniforms. Next time you see it, watch the blue uniforms right. and watch them change color. Um, uh, Itamar, I'll put this one to you. Uh, Beit HaTikva means House of Hope in Hebrew. Aside from sounding similar to Petach Tikva, is that meaning intentional or just a happy coincidence? I mean, you would have to ask Iran to get a definitive answer to that question, but my guess is it feels to me like one of those things that um, he needed something that sounded similar to a real Israeli town that's large enough to have an Arab cultural center. There aren't that many of them. And then um, he may have selected Petzach Tikva because he then thought, oh, it could be this other thing, um, or not. But it, 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 it feels like the kind of thing that he maybe arrived at and then 
instinctively knew was right and then held on to for that reason. That's it. Fe it feels like something like that. Like I'm sure. Um, uh, I my you know for, which is to say I don't think he said I would really like it if the town they ended up in was called House of Hope. Oh, what luck! There's another <laughs> Israeli city that sounds kind of like that if you if you substitute the P for the B in exactly the way that Egyptians would. Uh, my guess is it happened in the other direction. Right. Yeah. Uh, last question for me, I guess, to you, Oren. Uh, so I know you're thinking about the future of the show. It's going to travel. I know the movie had trouble playing in the Middle East. Do you have any thoughts on whether this musical could play in the Middle East or not, and where? I think it would be, um, well, I think playing it in Israel would be not, not difficult. Uh, we've had all, all, the, all the major theaters in Israel have reached out to us with, with a lot of interest in doing a production there. Yeah, the film has had a, a couple of thwarted attempts to play in other Middle Eastern areas. I, I, I do a lot of touring, and I've been involved with tours that have played through the Middle East, so there is a growing uh, a number of theaters that exist, performing arts centers that exist in the Middle East where they're starting to understand what Broadway series are. I think probably things like Disney are going to be the first sure. things to go in there, things that have larger brands where there's some... No, so I have an idea about creating uh, this dynamic ensemble that we could tour through the Middle East. I don't know. I, I don't know what the practicality of it is. Theater can go there. It's very difficult. Even to do Disney shows there, it's very difficult. Um, this would be uh, very challenging, but it's certainly something I'm, I'm interested in exploring, uh, definitely. Well, congratulations to all of you on the show, and thank, thank you all for being here, and thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. <laughs>